Welcome everyone to one of this month's BJJ podcasts. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome to one of two podcasts we're doing for the month of August from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. I would like to thank all of our readers and listeners for the comments and support we've received so far for our podcast series, as well as to our authors and guest interviewers who have taken part so far. We really do appreciate all of their efforts. So far this year, we've covered a range of topics, including the role of robotic unicompartmental knee replacement with our editor-in-chief here at the journal, Professor Faris Haddad. We had a fascinating dialogue between Ian Murray and Dr. Scott Rodeo on cell therapies in orthopedic surgery, and more recently, a series of podcasts to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society closed meeting. We do hope these podcasts are improving the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish here at the journal, for both you as our readers, as well as for our many authors. As many of you know, over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll have a cover a range of topics from a chosen study, emphasizing the important points of how the work has been designed, the key findings from the study, how it potentially fits into your day-to-day practices, with this month's discussion, I suspect, being relevant to many of our listeners. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. Today, I had the pleasure of being joined by both Professor Matt Costa and Mr. David Metcalf from Oxford, who, in collaboration with Cheryl Zog and the team from Yale, have produced their paper, Pay for Performance and Hip Fracture Outcomes, an interrupted time series and difference in difference analysis in England and Scotland, which were published in the August edition of the BJJ. Welcome, Matt and Dave, and a big thank you to both for taking the time to join us today. So, Matt, if I could start with you. As it's stated nicely in your paper, hip fractures are associated with high mobility, high mortality, and obviously healthcare costs. With the figures quoted in your paper of approximately 70,000 cases annually at a cost of almost £2 billion per year. And one strategy we know for improving outcomes is to incentivize hospitals to provide better quality care. So Matt, could you just give us a brief background for uh, regarding pay for performance initiatives in England for those listeners who are not familiar with the system? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrew. So um, it's not really just about England. So all healthcare systems around the world have um, spent a lot of time and effort, a lot of clinicians involved in creating evidence to improve care for patients, to provide better, faster care and more effectively. Um, and there's a lot of written about that in the journals, but sometimes translating that evidence of best practice into real change, into practice in, in every hospital around the country, around the world, around the healthcare system is difficult. And that's sometimes because the clinicians don't believe the evidence or believe it could be better. But often it's to do with processes and systems and pathways that just make it difficult to deliver these best uh, practice care. So healthcare systems everywhere uh, in the US, in Australia, basically all over the world are finding ways to incentivize systems rather than necessarily individual clinicians to improve care for patients. And one way to do that is obviously with financial incentives. So um, in the UK, in the last um, 10 years in particular, there's been over 20 areas of clinical um, activity that have been subject to um, top-up payments related to performance. So in a particular area, you will set some standards of what you believe is best quality care. And then if hospitals, systems, processes achieve those targets, those quality standards, then you will provide them with more money on the basis of that. And that's really, it took off around 2000, late to early 2000, and then in 2010 was extended um, into many areas around the country, including hip fracture in the UK. Yeah, so obviously that's very relevant to, to your study. So obviously the National Hip Fracture Database is obviously linked with something called the Best Practice Tariff. Can you give us a bit of detail about how that sort of developed? Yeah, so the National Hip Fracture Database is, uh, I guess, one of the great big success stories of the NHS recently. It started in 2007 based on a lot of work in 
in Scandinavia and, and in Scotland first, but it's become the biggest and probably the best known um, hip fracture registry in the world now. There's, I think, around 600,000 patients now logged on the database. Um, and since it started in 2007, each year there's been a reduction in mortality. But some of the markers of best practice that might improve mortality um, and reduce mortality for patients were, were proving a little difficult to enact. So, for instance, improving time to theatre from injury to get to the operating theatre to have the surgery to fix or replace the hip was quite uh, difficult to change. So. Um, actually, a colleague of, of ours, David and mine, um, Keith Willett, who was involved in NHS England, still is involved in NHS England, um, tried to introduce a best practice tariff linked to quality standards of hip fracture, and this was activated in 2010. And then since then, there's been improvements in time to surgery and so on, but and improvements in mortality. And the question was, were those changes due to the best practice tariff or would those changes have happened anyway? And this is where David's work comes in to try and answer that question. That's brilliant, Matt. And that's a really nice background uh, for, the, for, the, for the listeners. So, David, if I can come to you next, obviously the aim of your study, as, as Matt's just said, was to sort of quantify the effect of the, the best practice tariff on hip fracture outcomes in England. And you've also used controlled data from, from, from my area in Scotland and obviously estimating the effect of potentially introducing that at uh, the north of the border. So. The study relied on the data from the two national databases in the two countries. So can you give sort of a brief overview of, of, of these and what they contain and collect routinely? Yeah, thank you, Andrew. So, um, so as you said, the, uh, the, the study relied on the fact that the, the National Hip Fracture Database and the Best Practice Tariff were implemented in England, um, but, not, not, but not north of the border in, in Scotland. Um, so we, we had to select, um, we wanted to select a, a data set from England and a separate data set from Scotland. Um, we didn't feel as if we could use um, the National Hip Fracture Database um, in England, which would be the obvious uh, source of research data for this in this population. And that's because, um, as Matt said, um, the, the best practice tariff is, is paid based on data that hospitals submit to the National Hip Fracture Database. Um, so there would have been all sorts of um, problems with using using that, that resource. So instead we used um, administrative hospital data. So we used hospital episode statistics, um, which is a data set in England. And we used a very similar data set, the Scottish mobility record, which is used in Scotland. Um, and these are both, they're both administrative data sets. So they're principally, um, their principal purpose is to, to quantify hospital activity for administrators. Um, but they hold a range of data about individual patients, including demographic characteristics, diagnoses, and, and um, details about their hospital admission. But importantly for us, both, both data sets are linked to civil registration mortality data as well. So whenever a patient dies um, anywhere in the United Kingdom, as soon as that death is registered, um, the uh, civil registration mortality databases are updated. Um, and that allowed, that allowed us to see um, if, a, if a patient died anywhere in the United Kingdom, we weren't um, limited by, by geography. Uh, so that was very helpful for us in terms of tracking patients over time, very important for our study. Excellent. That's, that's, that's great, David. So if we get on to like sort of the meat of the methodology, so which, which patients did you include uh, from the databases and what were your uh, primary and your secondary outcome measures that you used uh, in your analyses? Uh, yes, so we, we, we extracted data on all patients aged 60 or older um, if they were treated with a hip fracture. Obviously in England or Scotland, 
with an admission date between January 2000 and December 2016. So we had quite a long um, period of time. Um, the primary outcome was death at 30 days from admission to hospital, so 30 day mortality. But we also looked at uh, death at 60, 90, 365 days. We looked at readmission to hospital. We looked at um, the length of time it took um, for a patient to receive an operation after presenting to hospital. And we also looked at um, hospital length of stay. Excellent. And so in terms of how, how the analysis were formed, obviously I, you know, I've, I've read the paper myself and in, they're very nicely laid out in the manuscript, very clear. But just for our list, listeners, there's some complexity there and probably a few terms that a few of us have not heard before. Can you just give us a simple, concise overview of, of, the, of the analysis uh, performed for the listeners? Yeah, of course. So, um, so as we said earlier, the, the study relied upon the fact that the, the National Hip Fracture Database and the Best Practice Tariff were implemented in England, but not in Scotland. And one of the problems with looking at patient outcomes over a long period of time is that they often trend in one direction or the other for all sorts of reasons. Um, for example, we know that hip fracture mortality has trended gently downwards in most countries over the last couple of decades. And this could be for any number of reasons and, and probably multiple reasons. It might be related to better primary care or better nutrition or better social care. Um, but it does mean that there's, there's a methodological risk of simply comparing outcomes um, before and after any given date because if you just select, select any date you'll find there'll be a statistically significant difference because there's a pre-existing trend towards improved mortality so in our study we wanted to examine trends in england while accounting for changes that would have occurred even if the national hip fracture database and the best practice tariff had not been implemented and we, so we used data from scotland to model these so-called secular changes things that would have happened anyway even if the intervention hadn't been introduced. Excellent. That, that's, that's really helpful, David. Thank you for that. It's a very clear, concise overview of, of how it was done and the importance of the, of, of the, the control data, should we say, from, from Scotland. So if we move on to, so obviously the results of the study, you, you looked at uh, there was just over a million patients, I think, aged over 60, um, uh, that had a hip fracture over that 17-year period you mentioned in England and just over uh, 116,000 in Scotland. The demographics are very much as you expect, particularly when using big data like this. You know, over 75% were female, and the vast majority sort of occurred in the ninth decade of life. So, David, if I could ask you if you could just detail for our listeners the key findings in relation to your primary outcome measure, which was obviously, as you said, the 30-day mortality rate. Yeah, so um, so we found that 30-day um, broadly the same in England and Scotland um, before the the, uh, the hip fracture database and the VPT were introduced. Um, and before those interventions, it was slowly decreasing in both countries, but at the same rate. Um, and things didn't change very much when the National Hip Fracture Database was implemented in 2007. But from 2010, um, when the BPT was implemented, uh, mortality in England began to fall at a much higher rate. Um, unsurprisingly, the outcomes in Scotland, they continued to improve but along that slow pre-existing trend towards gradual improvement. Um, and overall, this study suggested that there was a significant, a statistically significant reduction in mortality of 1.6 percent, uh, percentage points in England, which might sound small, but it represents 7,600 fewer deaths in England between 2010 and 2016 than would have been expected without the BPT. Yeah, I mean, those are quite stark figures. And I think just looking at your one of the tables in your paper, the the, the 
uh, quite marked decline in England from 2010 to 2016. So uh, but what about mortality rates at the other time points, uh, David? Yeah, so we wanted to reassure ourselves that um, the BPT wasn't just delaying. Um, however, reassuringly, we found that the um, this, we found exactly the same patterns when looking at mortality at 60, 90 and 365 days. So there seems to be um, mortality gains for patients at least as far out as a year. Yeah, because obviously, look, again, looking at that table, the, 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 the reduction in that, that final six, seven year period is, is maintained throughout, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So looking at um, the other outcomes, so you mentioned time to operation, length of stay and readmission rates. What did you, what did you find for those? So uh, in England, before the best practice tariff was implemented, uh, there was a trend towards fewer patients being operated within 36 hours of arriving at hospital. Um, so we were heading in, in very much the wrong direction. But there was also a trend every year towards increasing numbers of uh, hip fracture patients requiring readmission to hospital. One of the interesting things about this study is that once the best practice tariff was introduced, both of those negative trends reversed and we started to see improvements. Um, and hospital length of stay also fell in England um, once the BPT was introduced, which, um, which may well have implications for, um, uh, for saving costs as well. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's brilliant, brilliant, David. And I think it, you know, it's very clear the, 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 the trends across all the outcome measures were very, were very positive. And so if we, if we sort of move on to the implications of the study, which I think are going to be quite, quite profound given its findings, it's clearly provided strong evidence for the pay performance program that was in, instigated and proving the hip fracture outcomes, in particular mortality. And, you know, it's a, the strengths of the study are really clear. There's a large number of patients included and the use of big data and comprehensive national cohort databases and the very, very robust analysis performed using the control data from Scotland. So Matt, maybe if I, if I came back to you, what do you feel are the key findings of the work and, and the implications of it, considering any potential maybe limitations or caveats uh, to the data? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So, uh, I mean, you've, you've really alluded to the key finding. This is, David's provided the really first, or well, the first really hard evidence to support these financial incentive schemes around hip fracture in the UK. And one of the first really conclusive studies to come out anywhere around the world, really. So I think it is quite profound. I mean, the use of the best practice tariff in, in various areas in the National Health Service is contentious. It costs money to administer these schemes. And unless there's proven benefit for the patients, is that money being well spent? And this is something that's under um, hot debate in NHS England, uh, you know, as we speak. So these findings are really pretty important for those considerations and, and hopefully will lead to a continuation of this scheme that seems to be uh, improving outcomes for patients and reducing mortality. Um, mm. As ever, there are limitations uh, with this. David's alluded to some of them already. Um, the main ones really are around residual confounding. Um, so what do I mean by that? Well, really all of the other things that happen uh, either patient factors or the hospital factors that um, we can't measure within routinely collected data sets that might also have affected the results. Um, however, the, the key advantage we have of this uh, system in the United Kingdom is that we have a single unified healthcare provider, our National Health Service, um, and our patient populations, although there are some differences, are actually remarkably similar. So we, we have a, a beautiful control in a way, really, that actually most of the system factors, the delivery of care processes, the referral pathways, everything uh, are the same in the two countries. So the comparison becomes much easier. So although you can never completely rule out other factors that will have 
um, influence these results. In this particular setting, with this particular data set that David's had access to, then uh, I think we can be reasonably confident that these are, um, uh, you know, in all findings we can rely on to inform future practice. Yeah, no, no, I, I, to I totally agree. And David, maybe just as Matt has alluded to, if I just come back to you briefly, yeah, how how do these results compare to any of the previous data on 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 this topic in the literature? So there's there's been a, a there have been a lot of studies looking at pay for performance initiatives around the world um, and in all sorts of different patient populations, um, and on the whole, those studies have not been hugely encouraging. But there does seem to be something a little bit different about um, the way the that hip fracture care care has been transformed. Um, uh, which uh, which appears to have been partly driven by the best practice tariff in England. Um, and and there, there have, over the years, been a number of single centre studies uh, from English hospitals showing that quality processes did improve over time when the National Hip Fracture Database and the best practice tariff were introduced. Um, and these are clearly consistent with our findings um, using data from uh, across England and Scotland. And so, Matt, maybe if I could come to you, to, to you finally, maybe for not, not really a difficult question, but more the controversial one. So what, what do you feel the implications of this are moving forward, maybe in including any cost implications, maybe not just for England, but for Scotland as well, and, and maybe even further afield with regards to this data? Yeah, so the, I mean, this is a huge area, uh, Andrew, really. So, I mean, it costs money to implement best practice tariffs to collect the data and to then uh, set up the payment systems. Um, so that money's got to be uh, got to be proven to have benefit, and David's you know pushed towards that. Given that we spend around two billion pounds every year on looking after hip fracture patients, that's the NHS and the the social care costs, and almost certainly some other recent work that we've done suggests that that underestimates the the uh, costs of informal care. So uh, other people taking time off work and away from other activities to look after patients with hip fracture. So almost certainly an underestimate of what it costs. Then the potential implications financially here are, are massive. So if we can, it's not just about getting people back to their own homes quicker, which saves money from hospitalisation, but if we can improve their quality of life and allow them to live more independently, the social care implications in terms of the cost of that, if nothing else, are, are just enormous. And that, that's replicated around the world. Um, so we, we've had a, a sort of big demographic change in the UK over the last uh, 30 years or so, uh, an older, more active uh, population, which is great, but also a lot of frailer patients within our communities who need a lot more care, including those with, with um, hip fracture. Uh, but around the world, that, that demographic change is only just starting, and it, the proportions are just absolutely staggering. So in Southeast Asia, the proportion of elderly patients who will be having hip fractures is just going to go up and up uh, every year. Um, and healthcare systems around the world are not necessarily as well set up as we are in the, in the UK to, to deal with that demographic sort of change. So we're talking trillions of, of pounds here in, in costs. So even small incremental benefits in outcome for patients and reduced costs will have massive implications around the world. Yeah, no, uh, that's a, a really nice way to put it, Matt. And I think, you know, if, uh, around the world, it's, it's it, like you say, these small changes, but actually uh, end up in massive, massive outcome changes for the patient and, and potentially cost savings as well. Well, I think, David and Matt, that's for sure we have time for. But thanks so much for joining us for, for, for the podcast. And congratulations to you both on a really excellent study. I really do think it's a real, a real game changer in the area. And I think it's provided some essential uh, evidence uh, to support um, the changes that have happened uh, in England.
Uh, and I'm sure it's given many of our listeners much food for thoughts. Um, and to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook and the like. Um, and feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us.